strong women, smart policy, solid theology, and no apology. You're listening to Women for America, a ministry of Concerned Women for America, the nation's largest public policy organization for women, bringing you biblical perspectives to today's most pressing issues. Here's your host, CEO and President Penny Nates. It has been four months since the horrific attack on Israel by Hamas, and the IDF believes that nearly a quarter of all hostages held by Hamas in Gaza could be dead. Today, I'm joined by Daniel Flesh, a foreign policy expert who served as senior advisor to Israel's mission to the United Nations in New York City. He's a former paratrooper in the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, and today will provide for us strategic update on the war in Israel. And tell us what the purpose of the war is and what it really means for the Middle East and for the entire world. Welcome to Women for America, Daniel. Thank you so much for joining us today. Concerned Women for America and our young Women for America leaders across the country have been so um, intent on supporting Israel. We have uh, on college campuses, our YWA leaders have been incredible at leading prayer vigils, inviting the Jewish students, supporting them, loving them well. And uh, we just want to so strongly be able to support Israel, but also to pray for Israel. So having you here today helps us to know how to pray more intelligently, more directly. Um, so welcome to Women for America. Why don't you tell, start out telling us a little bit about you? I mentioned that you were a member of the IDF. So how, as an American, I suppose that made you a lone soldier, right? And many of our people don't even know what that is. Yes, well, thank you, Penny. Appreciate you having me here. It's it's quite a pleasure and an honor. Uh, yeah, so I serve as a lone soldier, which means that a lone soldier is someone whose parents do not reside in Israel. So predominantly, it refers to those who are from outside Israel, who come to Israel through either becoming a citizen called making Aliyah or voluntarily enlist, which I did. Or a lone soldier can actually be uh, a soldier whose parents are Israeli and happen to live outside the country. So there's certain technicalities. But uh, yes, I, I'm from Chicago originally, uh, and after college, I went to serve in, in the Israeli Defense Forces. And you can do this fairly simply, frankly, if you're Jewish. Of course, Israel is like any other country. If you become a citizen, if compulsory service, you will have to serve. But I, for, for my story, um, it's a long story, but to keep it pretty short, my last year in college, uh, I started taking Arabic, which pushed me towards learning more about Judaism and my heritage and my people and my religion. And that developed a very strong connection with uh, spiritual and, and um, cultural and, and a more deeper connection with the Jewish people and with the state of Israel. I actually first planned on joining the uh, U.S. Army, but then after, again, developing this connection, going to Israel and coming back and talking to my grandmother who fled Poland before World War II, but who basically asked me, what will your generation do once my generation, the generation of the Holocaust survivors are gone? And I felt a compulsion, frankly, driven by my American identity in part, being that Israel is the only liberal democracy in the region. And many of the evil forces, when I served, before I served, and we're seeing today, which we'll get to, first attack Israel, then attack the United States, mm -hmm. I felt compelled to then go do what I could for the Jewish people. And again, for the same side of the United States, what my people couldn't do 80 years ago. So That's I found myself serving. Yeah. That is so beautiful. I've been to Israel three times. 
Um, and and one of those times I was able to go to several of the uh, military compounds and to meet many of the IDF soldiers, men, young men, young women. I had my 18-year-old daughter with me at the time, and it was just so startling to me that those young people standing there with M16s were her age. Yeah. And I got to tell you, it was really night and day between my American pampered daughter <laughs> and these kids that had had compulsory service, took it very seriously. They mm -hmm. were just so bright and intentional. I was so impressed. Um, and now I'm in three months, I'll be an active duty army mom, uh, my son. So I can imagine how your parents must have felt. But yeah. what is uh, different about Israel as opposed to the United States, even though it's a country the size of New Jersey, it's surrounded by terrorists who hate her and plot the murder of her citizens every mm -hmm. single day. And of course, on October 7th, um, you know, you only have to be wrong once, right? Yeah. Uh, and certainly there was a failure of intelligence, but it's clear that the terrorists have been plotting this perhaps for as long as a decade and they were very successful. And I can't even express to you my deep sadness. I'm so sorry for the loss of Israelis, perhaps friends or families of yours, uh, but we are going to do what we can do to make sure that we're standing up and speaking out against anti-Semitism. So why don't you give us a little background mm -hmm. and give, you know, I think you probably know some things that we're not completely aware of. And I mentioned at the onset what the New York Times had said. I don't know if that's true or not, but maybe what you can tell us about the invasion that mm -hmm. isn't widely known and then also where things are right now with the hostages, which is such a key concern of mine. I've been on uh, national television speaking out about the fact that we've got to bring those hostages homes. There's there's between six and eight Americans yep. still being held hostage. We don't know how many are alive, but even if they're not, we want their bodies back. We want them back. Right. So th there's a lot there. And uh, I'll try to keep this uh, as ex expeditious as possible. In short, there's a few layers of what's going on as it relates to October 7th and the current war. Most specifically, you mentioned actually in your question that this has been planned for about a decade. And that uh, there are reports suggesting that as much early uh, in the days after the attack, a number of people, myself on Fox News and CNN, suggested that this was immediately because Iran wanted to derail normalization efforts between Israel and uh, Saudi Arabia, which is certainly true. That's one component. But you mentioned the decade-long preparation. A report came out, I think about a month ago now or so, that uh, what's known as Al-Aqsa Flood, the October 7th attack, was in the works since about 2014. And uh, I give some context there. In 2014, there was the last major ground operation into Gaza called Operation Protective Edge. And this plan was shelved at the time for obvious reasons and brought off the shelf uh, you know, last year or a couple of years ago and implemented a few months ago. But the question also is why did Hamas design such a plan to infiltrate into Israel for the explicit purpose of killing and capturing soldiers and civilians? Well, during my service, I served from 2010 to 2012, you had the exchange of Gilad Shalit, an Israeli corporal, a, a soldier, for 1,027 Palestinian terrorists and other security prisoners. Uh, Yahya Sinwar, who's the head of Hamas in Gaza, was one of those individuals released. And he was actually in prison, not for killing Israelis, for killing Palestinians during the Palestinian civil war between Hamas in Gaza and Fatah, or Mahmoud Abbas's mm -hmm. organization, which is predominantly in the West Bank. They used to be in Gaza as well. There's a civil war, and Hamas wrested control from them in 2007. 
And Sinwar was in jail for that and other reasons as well. He actually developed a brain tumor uh, during his time in jail, was treated by yes. a doctor, a surgeon, saved his life. And yet he still implemented this, which tells which you Which can I just say that yeah. is so typical of the Israelis. I mean, they offer health care to the people that despise them, hate them, you know, give, mm -hmm. you know, people who've lost limbs that are Palestinians, yeah. you know, they have, they have, and, and Lebanese even, they have done a lot to try to help their enemy. And it's never, it's always evil return for good. That's very true. And I forget which senior Hamas leaders right now, but a couple family members are being treated for various reasons in Israeli hospitals as we speak. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I want to hone in on the 1,027 Palestinian terrorists for one Israeli soldier, which that when I was serving engendered a lot of conversation. Wow, you know, if I'm captured, is this mm -hmm. what Israel is going to give up to, to get my return? And what does that mean, even from an American perspective, where we just have the tagline, we don't negotiate with terrorists, which is obviously practically not true. Right. But still, what does that mean to give up one soldier for a thousand over a 1,000 terrorists? And so you start to think that Hamas, by capturing Israelis, they had this bargaining chip. Mm -hmm. And we saw in end of November, early December, the hostage exchange, we got about a, over 100 Israelis back, uh, and not just Israelis, but other civilians back for over 300 or so Palestinians. Again, Hamas will exchange these people because when, when they only feel they need to. Part of the military campaign that's going on right now is very successful for Israel. So it's been about 125 days since October 7th. It's been about 100 or so days since Israel started its ground operation into Gaza. First, they started in the north, the Gaza City. Then they started advancing south towards the main city right now called Khan Yunus, which is believed where Sinwar, first off, it's his birthplace. So it's a very kind of a special place for the Hamas movement. In a hotbed, for sure, of terrorism. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's believed that he's surrounded by uh, by many of these civilians, civilian mm -hmm. hostages. And then Israel's moving further south as well. And now it's becoming an issue because they're coming up towards the Egyptian border and figuring out a political question there because a lot of uh, Gazan uh, internally displaced people have moved there towards the Egyptian border. But right now there's negotiations between Israel and Hamas through the US, through the Qataris, through the Egyptians and other players about are we going to have another ceasefire for or temporary ceasefire for an exchange of hostages. The one that led to the last one was Israel's military success. And we're seeing that again right now. But of course, Hamas, I believe, will not give up all of its hostages because if it does that, it has it has no human shield in a literal sense to stop the IDF from finding and limiting every single Hamas member. Um, so, and of course, Hamas's most recent demands to have ultimately 135-day ceasefire and about 45-day tranches, essentially leading to the cessation of hostilities, not a peace agreement, but an end to this current war, Again, Hamas is feeling the military pressure from the IDF. Now, the Israel's also looking not just at its Gazan border or Gaza, but also to the north mm -hmm. with, with Hezbollah in Lebanon. And if there were not a war right now in Gaza, we would be seeing the third Lebanon war right now in southern Lebanon against Hezbollah. Effectively, this is a war, mm -hmm. just Israel's not committing the number of resources to it, again, because it's immediate need was Gaza and the hostages and eliminating Hamas. Uh, but guys that I served with are back in reserve duty and they have been on the Northern border. Some of them are coming off the border, uh, have some R&R to get back to their nine to five jobs with orders potentially to return in a few months time. And there's increased rhetoric from some of the commanders, the idea of commanders of the Northern command of the divisions up there, that there will be a 
full-scale kinetic operation into Lebanon. It remains and to be And by the seen. way, it was the Lions of the North that I was able to visit at that base. Oh, wonderful. Yes. Yes. Very good. Impressive. Uh, yeah. And so I served up there. It's a much mm -hmm. different environment and terrain than Gaza. Gaza mm -hmm. is just like Tel Aviv in terms of a coastal plain. It could have beautiful beaches. It could have been a wonderful tourist mm -hmm. destination, but obviously yes. not to be. Hezbollah, or Lebanon, excuse me, is mountainous, hilly at best, more mountainous if you get go closer to the Syrian border, uh, very heavily forested in some areas. Uh, so the terrain is much more difficult from a uh, ground operations uh, uh, perspective, but also Hezbollah, like Hamas, has been digging tunnels for years, some of which were exposed when I was at the United Nations serving for various Israeli ambassadors, bringing UN delegations and other ambassadors there to see them. And Hezbollah has embedded itself in the civilian population, just like Hamas. And most notably, and the main difference between Hamas and Hezbollah is Hamas has always presented a tactical threat to Israel. This is in part why Israel, October 7th happens. Because the last 15 plus years, Israel kind of kept Hamas boxed and contained in Gaza. Every so often, every few years, you'd have a conflagration, some other, um, some minor operation or war. But then things would settle down. And this is different right now because of October 7th. Mm -hmm. With Hezbollah, you don't have the same luxury, essentially. It's been quiet since 2006, since the Second Lebanon War. But Hezbollah has an arsenal of between 150 and 200,000 rockets. That dwarfs Hamas's arsenal before October 7th, estimated at about 30 or 40,000 rockets. And those rockets from Hamas, Iron Dome, could shoot down by and large. From Hezbollah, it's a different story. Mm -hmm. From a technical perspective, these rockets are, first off, significantly numbers of them are missiles, so they can be directed. They don't just file a parabolic arc. They actually have a target that they seek out. They have higher trajectories. They fly faster, et cetera. And Iron Dome is no match for that. There's a cost and position as well for Israel to shoot these down. It's a very significant threat that Israel faces, a strategic, even existential one. So if there is a full-scale war with Hezbollah, it will be, frankly, a destructive one on both sides. I'm going to hope that the IDF strikes first before Hezbollah uh, lets off any sort of significant volley towards Israel, which their rockets, their missiles can reach as far south as a lot. Um, I I want to go back to the hostages in a second, yes. but I will just say I, uh, I, I was there on that border and... Um, you know, it was just incredible to, again, to meet those young IDF soldiers, they're young women there. We went into one of the control rooms and they were showing me like, this, see this little blip. I have 30 seconds to figure out whether that is a uh, missile, whether it's a plane, whether it's a plane that's flying over to, you know, be a suicide bomber or, you know, whatever it is, do I need to shoot it down? What I have 30 seconds to make that determination. And we just remember, we just recently had uh, the situation in the U.S. or with on a U.S. military compound where they mistook yeah. a drone coming at them as one of our own, yeah. because that just shows, you know, and people died, three people died. Mm -hmm. So it, it's a very, I, I just was so stunned by how young these IDF soldiers making these in incredible determinations and with this incredible responsibility, which makes them completely different people than our young kids going off to college. So by the time you come out and you're like a, you're an adult in every single mm -hmm. way, so different, so more, much more mature. And I just was so inspired by them. Men and women serve, they have different women serve two years. I believe women men yes. serve three, you can yes. go more, uh, you can go direct military, or you can be more of a 
I guess, a peacekeeping um, strategic role in hospitals and those kind of things, correct? Right, national service. I want to say two quick things on that. One is it's the aspiration of every Israeli to live in a world where they do not have to do mandatory service. And secondly, something that I I wrote about, I, I wrote a blog during my service, and you can, you can look it up. Let's type my name, and and it's called from the I, from the USA to the IDF. Yes. Um, and uh, one thing I maintain in that, I always tell people, is the IDF is not there to protect Jews; it's to protect everyone inside Israel. Mm-hmm. And in my service, I had more Druze commanders than I had Jewish commanders. Mm, I, I, served I, with Muslim, I served with Muslims. I served mm-hmm. with Christians. I served with everyone. It's a very pluralistic and diverse. Yes. country in general, certainly predominantly Jewish. It's the Jewish state, mm-hmm. but we're not there to, you know, to, to, to be aggressors against Muslims or Arabs because they are Muslim or Arab. It's, it's quite the contrary. We're there to protect everyone inside Israel. Well, which is why it's important for everybody to serve, for the Christians to serve, the Druze serve. And I did meet mm-hmm. some of your, the Druze that were incredible yeah. and, and very, very fighters. patriotic for yes. Israel. Um, can we just go back? I want to go back to uh, the hostages, which has yeah. just been such an important concern. I've met many of the family members. We have been uh, h- helpful in, we were asked to make connections with Republican members of Congress, senators and House members, uh, particularly the women for family members. And so we did that. Uh, I've gotten to know Liz Natali. In fact, I was talking to her today, who's a uh, little Abigail aunt, great aunt. And, uh, and thank God, Ab- little Abigail is back home, but let's remember she's an orphan. Uh, I have a picture of the Biba family on my, I have a stand-up folder that holds my folders on my desk. I have them on the outside looking at me, so I remember to pray for them. Um, I was told today, and I'd be interested to know if this is true, if you think this is true, that, of course, the hostages, we think there's, uh, how many did you say are left? Over 100 still so left. There's- 136. 136. Uh, and we think maybe 32 of those may be dead. We don't know. But I was told that they're heavily guarded and um, that if there's any whisper that they're coming to be liberated, that they just murder them. And so that's why we think so many may be dead. I just, anything that you're able to tell us, I would love yeah. to know because so we can pray honestly more directly on how to pray for them and protect them. Well, I'd say certainly pray for the souls of everyone. Uh, I do say it specifically the souls because, right, the New York Times reported a few days ago that according to Israeli estimates, about 30 or so are no longer alive. Um, I, I, I pray to God I'm proven wrong, but I fear those numbers are are higher than the few dozen that they suspect. Uh, you mentioned the Bebas boys. Mm-hmm. Kafir was nine months old when he was taken hostage. Why is beyond me? pure evil which we can get to as well but now he's over a year old um i have a 11 month old daughter at home and just to think about what that would I know. be and, i'm looking and, at their fat little cheeks in the picture and i'm like yes. if they are living what must they look like now i mean well, starved right. and traumatized and, and all the things right and so hamas's best bargaining chip is having any of these hostages first off so alive is certainly better, but in, since 2014, in 2014, in the last war I mentioned, they captured and still hold the now remains of two Israeli soldiers, mm-hmm. Adar Golden and um, I'm blanking the name of the second uh, second man, but they've been held hostage. They're dead and held hostage for the last 10 years. And there's two other Israelis 
uh, both both Muslim, I believe, who uh, wandered into the Gaza Strip inadvertently and been held hostage, we believe still alive, not sure. So there's four other people they've held hostage since before October 7th. Um, but the main, again, bargaining chip they have to slow the IDF advance for Sinwar to perhaps escape this alive is to have these hostages. So even when they have the hostage negotiations going on right now, I do not believe that ultimately they will release all the hostages unless they have absolute guarantees that Hamas leadership will be protected, which I think Israel, Bibi in particular, last night came out with a video address saying that total victory is the objective right okay. now, or it has been and continues to be. Again, there's you can't have everything. You cannot be able to have Hamas leaders to be alive uh, at the end of this war. Okay. And it's a difficult thing, going back to the Gilad Shalit deal, even before Israel, because of its Jewish tradition, highly values a life and b returning hostages back to their families uh, there's also issues about burial in jewish law they can't be buried and can't be declared dead unless you have uh you're able to be buried so a lot of issue and complicating factors there but the hostages are in a terrible situation and frankly the pressure should be not obviously on hamas but the pressure should be pointed blinken should not be in jerusalem he should be in cairo the pressure should be on egypt to open the its border it's rafa crossing with yes. gaza let Gazan civilians out because they are all huddled right there, over a million of them in an area that they moved there over the last number of, at the beginning of the war because yes. uh, you have to tell them to move, move south. And, and CC should be told, open the crossing. Certainly some Hamas fighters will leave and escape. That's understandable. But let them out so the IDF can conduct its operations against Hamas and not in a civilian area. I Okay, two things. I'm mm -hmm. just going to admit right now that I pray and I've I've said this publicly. I pray for Sinwar's death almost daily. I and that is biblical. King David, when when the enemy burned Ziklag and took hostages, the women and children, mm -hmm. they went and got them and you know killed everybody involved. <laughs> yes. And so and you know that was and in fact prayed to God should he go get them and God's like go get them. Mm -hmm. um, and so I am I strongly feel and believe that I won't comment beyond that, but Sinwar should be dead. The mm -hmm. other thing is, um, help me understand because I've, my understanding is that CC is reluctant to open the border because he's afraid of destabilizing his own nation. And I understood that better mm -hmm. when I saw the 46 minutes looking into the pit of hell film in which you have actual live footage of what happened October the 7th from the go cams of the Hamas fighters, the terrorists, mm -hmm. from video from their from phones and from dash cams and all of it. When I saw footage of, you know, young terrorists calling their parents to brag about killing 10 Jews and them praising Allah mm -hmm. and and pictures of the uh, jubilation on the in Gaza when they dragged back the poor little dead bodies of a young woman and a soldier. And so I see what they're saying and I understand what you're saying because they need to be able, IDF needs to be able to come in, but also understand why the Egyptians, because this group of people is so radicalized. Mm -hmm. um, it is hard. I, I just, that's the most shocking thing that I've learned in all right. of this is how radicalized the Gazans are. And now I understand why they elected Hamas. They elected Hamas. The, mm -hmm. uh, many of our listeners may not understand that in 2005, 2006, 
the Israelis unilaterally withdrew. Now, everybody wanted to go, by the way, and some of them were forced out at gunpoint. They even dug up their dead and said, have at it, left them beautiful homes, left them, you know, a seaside that they could have made a seaside resort and made it the Hong Kong of the Middle East. But instead, they blew up, you know, greenhouses and elected Hamas and uh, went downhill from there. And this is where they right. are. Now they've created, they created a monster and now they mm -hmm. have to live with the monster. And I'm very sorry for the little children who are completely innocent in this, who have become, you know, have become orphans, who've been hurt, right. have been killed. There's all of that, but it's very complicated. So help me understand that piece. Like sure. why, what should Egypt do to manage what I just discussed? Right. So let me just, two things. One is I am under no illusion that Egypt will be opening its border. I don't say that believing they will, uh, unless there's tremendous political pressure from this administration. Obviously, that's not going to be coming, but they're not going to do it. And they're not going to do it for the second reason. I'm going to give a little history lesson here if I can for a few minutes. Please, yeah. Uh, the Palestinian, no one in the Arab world likes the Palestinians, to put it kind of bluntly, mm -hmm. uh, and, and worse than that. So the Palestinian national movement, such as it is, it's not about creating a Palestinian state. It is about destroying or not allowing a Jewish state. This is not about land. This is not about religion. This is about, again, the existence of the Jewish people in their ancient homeland, uh, exercising sovereignty over themselves, which is the essence of Zionism. Yes. And so the Palestinian movements, in 1947, the United Nations took up this issue, had a partition plan to separate was then man British mandatory Palestine. The British controlled it after the Ottoman Empire dissolved in 1917. They controlled it for 30 years. They were at the end of World War II. They said, we're leaving this area. We'll hand it over to the UN. The UN said, okay, we'll create two states for two peoples, a, Brit uh, a, a Jewish state and an Arab state. Uh, and just real quick, in mandatory Palestine, the mandate system of Palestine, uh, Jews were considered Palestinians. There was the uh, Palestinian Philharmonic Orchestra was Jewish. The Jerusalem Post, the current largest English-speaking newspaper in Israel, was the Palestine Post. So the idea, the idea of a political term of Palestine being associated with Arab Muslims is only post-creation of Israel, and really post-1964. Um, so the Arabs rejected that. There was a war. Israel survived. And then, is, then the Arabs kept fighting Israel in 1967, 1973. Uh, before coming to peace with Egypt and then Jordan. But the Palestinian movement didn't really begin until 1964, three years prior to the 1967 war, which that six-day war in 67 saw Israel in a defensive war conquer and reclaim territory, in, including eastern sections of Jerusalem, unified mm -hmm. Jerusalem, what's now called the West Bank or Judea and Samaria. It's simply called the West Bank because it's the West Bank of the Jordan River, but it's Judea and Samaria, the ancient homeland of the Jewish people. The Sinai Peninsula and the um, and including Gaza as well as the Golan Heights and Israel gave that back eventually to Egypt after seventy three, but nineteen sixty four was before there were any settlements before anything any before Israel controlled any Palestinian people um, and the Palestinian Liberation Organization was created with Yasser Arafat who came from Egypt leading it and their objective again was instead of defeating Israel through war they defeat them essentially through terrorism and international public opinion. And they were based originally in Jordan until uh, 1972, I believe, when they tried to assassinate the king of Jordan. There was a fight and hundreds of thousands of Palestinians were, were either killed or kicked out of Jordan. They went to Lebanon. 
And there you saw them in the, Le the second, uh, sorry, the Lebanese civil war was instigated in the early 1980s, largely due to the presence of the Palestinians. They were kicked out of there and Arafat went to Tunisia. Palestinians were also in Kuwait until 1991 when they were kicked out of, uh, kicked out of Kuwait after the first Gulf War. Um, and then Arafat was only brought back into the fold of the good graces of the West through the Oslo peace process in the 1990s. The objective of the Palestinians has never been to create their own state. It's been to destroy Israel. So we start to look at it through And every state they're in, it sounds like. You know right, what so I mean? I'd say that Egypt's not going to let them in. Why? Mm -hmm. Because these people have been radicalized beyond belief. And a mm -hmm. lot of it has to do with UNRWA, the United Nations Relief Works Agency, which is mm -hmm. in the news now because the UN established this organization in 1940, uh, 1949 to accommodate refugees from the first Arab-Israeli war. Mm -hmm. Unlike every other refugee population in the history of, well, in the world since the late 1940s, which are under the UN High Commission for Refugees mm -hmm. uh, that tries to resettle people or repatriate them if possible. UNRWA perpetuates the conflict by keeping the Palestinians in perpetual refugee status, giving them refugee status onto their kids and their children again. Right, which nobody nobody else gets that, right? It's the next generation you've assimilated by then. Right, so you have a population that's highly radicalized, as you mentioned, not just in Gaza, but also in the West Bank. They're taught that, again, the Jews are colonizers from Europe, from the British, uh, if you look at any average Israeli, you realize we don't look European <laughs> for the most part. A lot, half the country now is from former Arab or from Arab countries or other other areas. So right now you have a population that's highly radicalized. Of course, Sisi doesn't want them into the Sinai because who knows who they're going to team up with, whether it's ISIS or Al Qaeda that has operations in the Sinai. Um, but again, to have a day after scenario, you have to have these this population, the body politic of the Palestinian people has to recognize and affirm that the Jewish state is not just have a right to exist, as they say, but actually teaching their people that they are here to stay and at best will try to live in peace by their side. Right. Some coexistence would go right. a long way there. Um, <clears throat> so we don't think that Egypt, for the for the obvious and good reasons you just stated, because of the history of destabilizing every mm -hmm. country they go to, is going to let them in. No. Um, I have no doubt that Israel will win this war. They've made incredible strides in a very short amount of time with the help of their partners and the U.S., thankfully. It's to the point that you just made, what is the day after? What do we do? Because how do you have a two-state solution? And people have started talking about two states again, which, by the way, let, let me go back a second. Mm -hmm. UNRWA, for so people remember, is the group that had to fire uh, a lot of their employees because they were part of Hamas. They had actually participated in the October 7th attack and invasion. So it's so, just. Let me put some numbers on that, if I can. Please. So UNRWA, UNRWA so in, in 1949, there were about 650, 700,000 Palestinian refugees. There are now about 5 million. No other, pal, no other refugee population in the world has quintupled or expanded that that mm -hmm. much. It's obviously been diminished. You, 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 right. You're a refugee from a country, you get repatriated. You're resettled. You get yeah, right. Right, resettled. Um, so UNRWA has operations in the West Bank, in Gaza, in Syria, in Lebanon, and Jordan as well, primarily where the Palestinian refugees fled to after the War of Independence for Israel. In Gaza in specific, there are 12,000 UNRWA employees, 12 of them that we know of actively participate in the October 7th massacre, which means they went into Israel and butchered, maimed, raped, brutalized, killed Israelis. Yes. About 1,200 of those employees are have been found on different telegram chats actively cheering the events. 
about 3,000 of those employees, and these are obviously overlapping circles, about 3,000 of those employees are um, uh, have direct ties to Hamas or Palestinian Islamic Jihad, another terror organization in Gaza, and about 6,000 or half of those employees, of UNRWA's employees, have other ties less direct, but family members are members of these other organizations or they have close affiliates. So the idea that UNRWA is somehow providing for the Palestinian people mm. in a beneficial manner is obviously a farce and a lie. That is a den of vipers. Yes. And I know, I think the Trump administration defunded them. And of course yes. the Biden administration comes back and does and does every good thing that they can possibly do and makes it bad. Yes. And this is just one of those. Plus mm -hmm. all the people that were on the terror were terrorists, declared terrorists, um, and like the y Yemen, um, like the Houthis from Houthis Yemen. Yemen. Yes. Yeah, the Houthis are in Yemen. Like now they I don't know why the Biden administration decides, oh, actually, we can work with those guys. They don't really mean it. They're they're well, just they called, misunderstood. They called uh, Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. They tried to make them pariahs to begin the administration. But now you're realizing, well, we actually need Saudi Arabia. Yeah, we need them. Right. It's incredible. Yeah. MBS is suddenly much more interesting to this administration. But uh, and I was very grateful to have been at the signing of the Abraham Accords, actually, with um, and and we're hoping that that would actually uh, move over into Saudi Arabia, which I still think there's a chance for that. And perhaps in the second Trump administration, we'll be able to do that. But um, what was my question? This all this is just so oh, incredible. the day after what's going the day after what yeah. what is next? Like, what do we do with these people, men and women mm -hmm. who have been horribly radicalized we know that it's true. What's what's so, the answer? The question is, what what does win look like and what does a day after look like? Um, the second intifada was from 2001 to about 2005. It was the most murderous time in Israel's history with their massacres and bus bombings perpetrated by Palestinians. Yes. Israel then retaliated uh, to to um, to find terrorist cells in the West Bank, in, in Shechem, Nablus, Janine, other places. Um, the, the second intifada destroyed the Israeli political left, did not believe suddenly the Oslo Accords were possible, uh, because when a state was on the table in the offering, mm -hmm. Arafat said no, it implemented the second intifada. Mm -hmm. I say that because the people that were attacked on October 7th, I mean, the, the, the very people who yes. live in the Uitzis in that area, they are those who are most dedicated to the proposition that we can, that Israel can live in peace with the Palestinian people. They are the ones who welcomed tens of thousands of Gazans every day into their communities for work and living amongst them as best as possible. Um, and they're the ones who were attacked. And I've heard from many Israelis that they are no longer believe, they no longer believe in peace. And one thing you're, you're, I hope your, your listeners all know is that whatever the date says in the calendar for many Israelis and us in the Jewish community, it is still October 7th. Mm -hmm. that we're still living through that and realizing the shock and horror of what that day means, not just the day itself, but broader questions you're asking about the day after. So no Israeli is talking about the two-state solution. The only reason BB and political leadership are is because they're being forced to by the Biden administration, rightly or wrongly. But the fact is they're not doing it because they're thinking about that because their constituency is not thinking about that. Like we talked about a lot so far today, they're talking about the hostages. They're talking about how to defeat Hamas and thinking about that also, again, to the north with Hezbollah and thinking about what are Iran's other plans vis-a-vis -vis Israel? Why are the Houthis firing rockets at us from down south in Yemen that thankfully, you know, the U.S. is intercepting, but why are they involved? That's what Israel's thinking about more generally. Um, but so a day after can only come. And what does the victory look like? Israel can no longer tolerate 
Hamas or in any form on its border. And it's not really on its border. Again, it's in its backyard. That's what Gaza is to, to Israel. So any, but you're not going to have a peaceful culture coexistence tomorrow. Again, we've talked about the radicalization of these people. So it's a generational issue. Israel does not have any designs. We've heard this from the spokespeople of the ambassador, the prime minister himself has any designs to repopulate Gaza. You mentioned in 2005, Israel has had a presence in Gaza since 1967 to 2005, since it uh, defeated Egypt. And Egypt, mind you, did not want Gaza back. No. Israel offered it. Israel took the Sinai back, but did not mm -hmm. take Gaza back. That should be very telling. It did mm -hmm. not want all the Palestinian people. And then in 2005, Israel disengaged, unilaterally pulled out of Gaza, including physically, the IDF physically removed about 9,000 Jews, Israelis who were living in Gaza, who had homes there, who had synagogues there, who had mm -hmm. cemeteries there, who had built uh, uh, thriving greenhouses and other uh, businesses there. And they pulled them out. That was the most traumatic moment in Israel's history of the last number of decades. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, it's October 7th. So a day after can only look like a uh, there's been no security threat from Gaza. Uh, and that does not in, include Hamas, Islamic Jihad, other terrorist organizations cannot pose a security threat. And really, there's not going to be any peace, a capital P peace, until the Palestinian people and their leadership really starts with the people because the leadership is only responding to the people. You know, Abbas cannot deliver peace in 2008 uh, when Olmert offered him. Arafat cannot deliver peace in 2000, 2001 when Ehud Barak and Bill Clinton offered it because he knew that the people would not go for it because the people have been taught, again, we will return to our homes in Tel Aviv, in Haifa, in other cities. And the Jews, again, are colonizers from Europe. Until they're disabused of that notion, they will not say, okay, we can stand with the Zionist entity on the other side of the border and we'll live in peace with them. Mm -hmm. um, so there's no short or easy answer, only that Israel realized that the because of the environment and neighborhood it lives in, it cannot handle, as you said at the beginning, to make a mistake ever again in this regard. And so that's why that's it's true. already establishing a border zone on the Gazan side of the border, mm -hmm. essentially like a de demilitarized zone to make sure it cannot be attacked. Um, but it remains to be seen what the military outcome of the war is to determine what the political outcome of the day after becomes. You know, I think about uh, at the end of World War II, you know, it's not, not as if the allies just went, okay, well, we won this, um, you know, Good job. All right, Japan, you're on your own. Okay, mm -hmm. Germany, go back at it. Like, no, we we understood what a threat to the world that Adolf Hitler was and his ally and his you know the axis of evil, mm -hmm. and um and so there had to be military uh, bases there. There had to be an ability for us to be assured that we would be safe. The world would be safe. Mm -hmm. I'm Israel. I'm never letting them again, trusting them to live peaceably by campaignably at our side. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, I think about what you just said about, I've been to, um, uh, Faraza. I think I was also, I believe, I don't remember if I was at Faraza or if I was at Kibbutz Berry. It may, it may have been one, it may have been both, um, in different trips, but they're the lefties, you know, they're the people that, you know, they're sort of the hippie peace people, if you were mm -hmm. in America and just wanted to live peacefully in this beautiful, idyllic community yeah. with their kids, raising their children. If they can't survive by, by, you know, on the border of Gaza, then no one can. Right. Right. This is, this is a catalyzing moment for Israel's kind of politics in some way. And that there, there are no peaceniks left essentially. 
Um, that's why you're not having anyone call for a ceasefire. In fact, the people are some of the hostage families and their supporters, un understandable, of course, but a long-term ceasing of hostilities, no one's calling for that because first off, the war is not won yet. Right. And secondly, uh, they realize that, okay, the day after what, Sinwar is going to reconstitute Hamas in Gaza? Absolutely not. Um, you know, one thing I, I want to note as well, um, you mentioned the German and Japanese examples, and those are great historical examples. Obviously, every historical example is imperfect in some ways. Sure. But ultimately, the United States won those wars, won that war. And the United States needs to allow Israel to win this war. Yes. One of the reasons October 7th happened, I believe, is because Israel has not been allowed to win wars. It has not been allowed to since 1973, effectively. Uh, even before then, you could say they, you know, Israel was about to um, roll into uh, Cairo and Egypt and Damascus and Syria in 1973 before international pressure stopped them. And probably for better reasons, they did that too. But right now, Israel has not been allowed to destroy Hamas. And they weren't allowed in 2014, where after 51 days, the Obama administration basically said, stop the fighting. In 2008, 2009, Operation Cast Lead is a similar story there as well. Israel needs to be allowed to win these wars. Because also, if you do not allow the uh, the party that was attacked to win against the aggressor, in this case, Hamas, the aggressor is going to do this again. And they have they just reconstitute. So, mm -hmm. Right. And they have said so publicly and loudly over the last yes. number of weeks, saying we're going to implement October 7th again and again and again. Yes, so there can be no two-state solution when your enemy is saying we're going to wipe you out. We're planning it. We know we're planning it. We're into you know, so just right. give us a minute. We'll be right back. Right, and no Israeli wants to have their kid again be in mandatory military service and have to do some sort of counterterrorism operation deep into Gaza City. Who wants to live like that? No Israeli parent Nobody. wants to do that. But obviously, that right now is the price for for having a Jewish state, the land of Israel, and that's a price that every Israeli is willing and happy to pay. For sovereignty, but yeah. they don't want to, and they want to have a part on the other side, partner, however you want to define it, that will live in peace with them. You were talking about, um, you were talking about the refugees. Yes. You know, there's, there's 55 majority Muslim countries and one Jewish state, yeah. and it's not that big. No. Nope. You know, the fact that they have all these other alternatives tells you everything you need to know. The other countries don't want them because of what we've just said. And they're never going to be satisfied with a beautiful resort country, <laughs> you know, a, a small envelope of land that let's remember Israel's small too. Again, it's only the size of New Jersey. Mm -hmm. So um, we, I understand. And I think, you know, it, I think Americans who are thinking completely can understand where you are and in order to be safe, you have to win. Um, yeah. so this has been great. We could go on and on and on, but as I'm, we're closing up here, what is, do you have any last thoughts that what is, what do we really need to know today? And how do we, you, we mentioned praying for the souls, but strategically yeah. also for the idea of how can we pray? Let me say a couple of things. One is very strategic and that is very practical for your, your listeners to do themselves. The strategic thing is this is not just a war between Israel and Hamas. And it's not just a war between Israel and Hezbollah. And it's not, frankly, just a war between Israel and ultimately Iran. This is a war between the West and the system that the United States helped create in the aftermath of World War II that benefits to our favor in every conceivable way uh, and those who wish to upend it. And so it's not just a political, but it's also a moral question. Are we going to allow Israel uh, to defeat evil, which is Hamas, and their yes. supporters, uh, their benefactor, Iran? 
And you could expand outward from there, realizing that Iran, Russia, and China, to varying degrees, are working together, again, to supplant the Western system that the United States has created. So this is not just a geopolitical question, it's also a moral question. Uh, and so that is something that I think every American and every supporter of Israel and everyone in the West should be aware of. And then, you know, tune your senses to things you hear, things you see accordingly, realizing this is the bigger kind of a conflict of our time. And not to mention, look back in the United States on college campuses. People who are calling for ceasefire or, or, or supposedly supporting Palestinians are not doing that. They're anti-Semitic. They're mm -hmm. calling for the destruction of Jews and the state of Israel. And they're supporting Hamas, a U.S.-designated terrorist organization. So this moral clarity is incumbent upon all of us to have and to see the world and to talk to each other in with such a lens. Now, on a practical level, certainly your prayers are extremely helpful and, and welcome and grateful. And you know, Israel is extremely supportive or grateful for America's support. And we're also certainly supportive or grateful for um, your community support as well. Beyond that, also reach out to your members of Congress, I'd ask, and tell them no, no ceasefire until Israel is able to win yes. the war. Push back against those initiatives. Um, you know, I, I forget which company it's right now. I think it was it was Intel. They are doubling their investment in Israel with other factories and such. And so should we. We should invest in Israel. We should buy Israeli things. Push back against those who want to boycott and divest and sanction Israel. Uh, so there are things on a practical level we could do every day. Obviously, your thoughts and prayers are extremely helpful. Last thing I'd say is if you know anyone Jewish or Israeli, just reach out to them and let them know you're thinking about them and you, and you support them. That's wonderful. Um, we are also one step beyond that. We have a 501c3, but also a C4. So we have been uh, working in Congress and urging them to support, uh, to, to pass the bill supporting Israel financially. Mm -hmm. And uh, Israeli aid has never been tied to any kind of an offset. It's something that we have uh, done from the very beginning because they so desperately need it just to exist. And they are our best partner, the only other democracy in the Middle East. And we need them there. Not to mention all the things that they have produced for the world. Uh, everybody that's ever had a PET scan that came from Israel. Many of our telecom technologies came from Israel. Our, our um, agricultural um, abilities to water Prepared and, you know, yeah, enable to, it was. Yes, all of those things came from Israel. And I could, we could go on and on and on. But all that to say, the U.S.-Israel relationship um, is actually helpful for both parties. It benefits both of us. And so we are working. I had a conversation um, yesterday with the Speaker of the House. And uh, this is not over. We're going to continue to work. Of course, we can we can talk about money for Ukraine. We can talk about what's happening um, uh, on the border, which is essential. We've got to make our border safe because I am very fearful that these same people have, are, are perhaps already here. Um, but we one thing at a time, if we have to do it that way, let's get it done. So anyway, our prayers are with you, Daniel. Thank you so much for your time. We are we are working in every way we possibly know. And we will look forward. We'll, if it's okay, we'd love to have you back again. Hopefully this will be, we pray that it's over soon. I fear that it's not going to be over soon. This is something that was going to take time, but we'd love to from time to time check in with you if that's okay. Absolutely, Penny. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. God bless. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Women for America. To keep up with the work that we're doing, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and head to our website, concernedwomen.org.